Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Pacific in the Northwest of the beautiful United States of America. Today is the 5th of August, and let's get right to our discussion. Uh, today, I'm going to talk to you about program cell death. I believe this is going to be either number, number nine or number 10 of our arc of a discussion of senescence that is aging. So we've been talking all the way up to the point of what actually induces cell death for many times in the studio and in my lectures. But uh, last time, I think I went through the rigors of programmed cell death, particularly apoptosis, et cetera, and et al., um, probably a year ago, uh, maybe even more than that. And so within the context of discussion of aging, I think it's good to review the uh, mechanism. So that's what we're going to do today. And today is, of course, the 5th of August, 2020. So let's get right to it. Again, this is Dr. Dan Guerra. Please leave a high rating on iTunes or wherever you pick up uh, Authentic Biochemistry. Give me five stars. That'd be really good because that would make it so that more people would recognize this is a fantastically deep content science podcast, one where we don't pull any punches, we go right into the scientific literature, and we discuss it for you, my wonderful audience. Also, I have a Patreon page you can look up. Uh, just look for Authentic Biochemistry Patreon, and you will find it. And we will greatly appreciate donations so that we can, uh, like, for example, add music to uh, Authentic Biochemistry. And one day, even have interviews, which I do plan to do, although we don't really need it because we have plenty to talk about just with me in front of the microphone. Anyway, let's do program cell death. So you have a regular cell, has a mammalian cell, let's say, has a nucleus, endoplasmic reticulum, mitochondria, peroxisomes, um, you know, various uh, endosomal complexes, uh, and it gets a pro-apatotic trigger. Now, that trigger can be any kind of stress, including an infection. It can also include alterations in metabolism. Uh, any kind of signaling that's going to trigger uh, that complex to start forming and then ultimately resulting in the end product, which is a dead cell. And that process is exactly what I'm going to talk about. <clears throat> so the first thing that happens after a trigger, and we'll talk about what triggers are specific, the cell starts to shrink, and that's because both potassium and chloride ions leave the cell, and with it, water. Now, as that continues, uh, you get DNA fragmentation within the nucleus. Then you get a fragmentation of the entire cell into apoptotic bodies, and then you get phagocytosis by a macrophage, and the cell is gone. Okay, so that's the general outline of what we want to talk about. Now, I mentioned to you several times the distinction between apoptosis and necrosis. Necrosis is classically called in cell biology pathological cell death. The dying cells swell and lice rather than shrink, right? Cellular contents leak out, and the result is, of course, an inflammatory response. Apoptosis is what's classically called physiological or programmed cell death. 
<clears throat> dying cells shrink, they become engulfed by the leukocytes, for example, the macrophage, they leave no trace, and they do not result typically in a pro-inflammatory response. Now, there's different kinds of apoptosis, which I've talked about in great detail back in the um, late winter, early spring when we were doing our auto-inflammation lectures. And so I'm going to just, I'm going to remind you of that uh, in like a one-page summary soon. So how do cells die? Well, they die by injury. That can be mechanical damage, or they can be exposed to a toxic or destructive chemical, right? And then they can die by suicide, which involve either internal or external signals. And that's the pathway for apoptosis. So apoptosis or PCD is carefully coordinated collapse of the cell, protein degradation, you know, there's proteolytic degradation to amino acid level, DNA fragmentation down to um, non-continuous ladders of DNA fragments, oligonucleotides that is, and that's followed then ultimately by rapid engulfment by neighboring cells. The essential part of life Apoptosis is the essential part of life for every multicellular organism, everywhere from simple invertebrates all the way to human. So apoptosis plays a major role from embryonic development all the way to senescence. It's not simply when the organism gets older. Apoptosis occurs whenever you get a damaged cell, it, as long as that damage hasn't resulted in a necrotic event that preempts an apoptotic event. Um, and of course, the other fate could be autophagy. Um, and, and then there are various kinds of cell deaths, such as senescence, which is actually the aging process. And that can occur, but that's not really a necrosis. Although ultimately the cell does become necrotic. We talked about um, necrotosis. I'm going to talk to you very soon about that. That's a necrotic type of apoptosis and that does induce inflammatory response. But regular classical apoptosis, just programmed cell death, occurs everything from, uh, throughout development from right after conception, during embryonic development, fetal development, all the way through, of course, parturition, and then growth, and then adolescence, and then um, young adulthood, middle age and old age. Apoptosis is constantly occurring in certain cell lineages, and that is perfectly what it's supposed to be doing. So I'm going to tell you now the distinction between apoptosis and necrotosis. Of course, apoptosis is a canonical PCD, and it's executed by proteases called caspases. However, when PCD signaling is corrupted, Various developmental defects can occur at, for example, the embryonic or postnatal stages in development in utero. Now, when apoptosis is disrupted, necrotosis via receptors interacting with protein kinase 1, and this receptor interacting protein kinase 1 is called RIP1 or RIPK1, and there's also RIPK3, and they're all deployed. So the RIPs are, again, serine, threonine kinases, and they interact via their RIP homotypic interaction motif. It results in the phosphorylation of both RIPK1 and RIPK3, and that leads to recruitment and activation of a mixed lineage kinase domain-like protein, or MLKL protein. 
Once that's activated, MLKL translocates and to and disrupts the plasma membrane. You see, this is different than normal apoptosis. You can already tell. You get a loss of the membrane integrity, that is plasma membrane, during necrotosis, and that results in a release of cellular contents leading to inflammatory responses. So you have a FAD system that's turned on. Let me explain to you what that is. That's the FAS-associated death domain. It's an adapter molecule, of course, which interacts with cell surface receptors, such as the TNF receptor or TRAIL receptor, TNF, necrosis factor receptor, and it mediates apoptosis via its C-terminal death domain. Once the C-terminal domain reacts with those receptors, an eruption of its N-terminal effector domain is going to recruit a caspase 8. That turns on the canonical cysteine protease cascade, and you mediate apoptosis, thereby inhibiting RIPK1-dependent necrotosis so that you ensure a successful embryogenic event. You see, so during embryogenesis, you block that necrototic pathway by utilizing this FAD system. Now, knockout studies have shown in mice, it's really important for that protein to turn over in early T-cell development. Okay, because you don't want the T-cell to become necrotic either. You want it to differentiate, right? Good. So programmed cell death is required for maintaining homeostasis and a suppression also of autoimmunity because it controls, for example, the innate and the acquired immune cell lineages. The extrinsic pathway for programmed cell death is triggered by the death receptors, or DRs, and that includes the FAS and the TNFR1, in which the FAD-D adapter recruits caspase 8, leads to apoptosis. RIPK1 has long been studied as a mediator on NF-kappa-B-mediated transcriptional regulation. NF-kappa-B activation occurs during pro-survival and, indeed, pro-inflammatory signaling until it becomes evident that RIPK1 also plays a role in what's known as the alternative death pathway or necrotosis. Now, when that happens, apoptosis is compromised and this can occur in various cell lineages. So you short-circuit apoptosis, where apoptosis is normally keeping stamped down, clamped down the rip kinase cascade. Here's where rip kinase um, succeeds in obviating the normal apoptotic pathway. Okay? And that means you're going to go through necrotosis. So actually, the uncovering of necrotosis and ferritosis, which involves iron, as the alternative forms of PCD resulted in some studies implicating regulated necrotic cell death. Therefore, it's called necrotosis. It's an, actually a really important contributing factor in tumor suppression, neurodegeneration. So tumor suppression, good. Neurodegeneration, not good. And in ischemia reperfusion tissue injury, which normally allows for recovery. So in the brain, Succession of blood flow followed by reoxygenation, that's ischemia reperfusion or IR, induces a complex cascade of events. And that involves an energy failure because of the lack of oxygen, obviously, and an alteration of ionic 
homeostasis, all that ultimately results in excessive release of neurotransmitter, especially glutamate, into the extracellular space. Now, I'm going to stop there because that's initiating necrotosis in the neural tissue. I'm going to get back to that. Don't worry, I'll, I'll bring it up one day and I'll say, remember when we talked about necrotosis? It won't be tomorrow, but it'll come soon. We're going to stop here. I just want to give you some distinction that the apoptosis does have some non-bland, some ferocious forms of programmed cell death, which does induce an inflammatory response. And when you think neurodegeneration rather than neurodevelopment, think necrotosis. Okay, neurodegeneration. That's a good way to look at it. Uh, because that's where it's been well studied, but also it's been well examined in the ischemia reperfusion, as I just told you in IR. Okay, let's move on from there. Now, you might ask in terms of apoptosis, why does a cell commit suicide? This is what it's called. I don't know if that's such a good way to look at it. It's obviously a metaphorical uh, nuance, but apoptosis is needed for proper development. So where do we see this? All over in biology. The resorption of the tadpole tail, okay? formation of fingers and toes in the fetus, human fetus, sloughing off of the inner lining of the uterus, formation of the proper connections in synaptic clefts between neurons in the brain. And that actually is regulated by glial cells, right? So apoptosis is needed to destroy cells. For example, that's another reason why we have it. Cells infected with a, an intracellular bacteria or because they're overproducing some protein they shouldn't because of a mutation, or because perhaps they're infected by a virus. Likewise, cells of the immune system become apoptotic to turn over so they don't destroy or become autoimmune agents. And then, of course, cells with DNA damage and, and lack of DNA repair. And this is now linked, you see, to senescence. And then, of course, apoptosis is really, really a good thing in cancer cells. But of course, so an overview of eukaryotic cell cycle might be necessary here. Of course, cell cycle has four phases, classically MG1, S, and G2. And G0, of course, is a gap. So G1 is the first gap phase. S is DNA synthesis. G2 is the second gap phase. Regulatory cyclin proteins and catalytic cyclin-dependent kinases regulate cell cycle progression. So you have protein phosphorylation and dephosphorylation because it's a cycle. And of course you get protein degradation and all these are critical to cell cycle regulation. So you have kinase cascades, you have protease cascades. You see, you know, the other aspect of your cell cycle is chromosome replication and segregation. And they are fundamentally similar in all eukaryotic systems from yeast all the way to man. And this is controlled by heterodimeric protein kinase is called cyclin or CDKs. So cell cycle, if you start, of course, uh, during let's, oh, I don't know. Let's start with the G1 phase, okay? With the G1 phase, you get centrioles replicating. Then you have an interphase where DNA replication occurs, SDS. Then you have a G2 phase, which is the final growth and the activities associated with ready for cell division. That's the G2 phase. And then you have mitosis. And mitosis goes, of course, through, I know you guys remember this, 
prophase, metaphase, anaphase, telophase, and then you actually get cytokinesis, uh, that is cell division. Okay, so that's a really crude cell cycle review. So from a paper published in the Annual Review of Pathological Mechanisms of Disease back in 2010, volume five, page, one, page 99 to 118, we gain this information. Senescence is a tumor suppressive mechanism, permanently arrests cells at risk for malignant transformation. Senescence is that, okay? However, there is evidence that shows that senescent cells can nevertheless have a pathological effect within the microenvironment. And we talked about this just last time, right? We talked about the senescent secretory phenotype. Remember that? We sure did. Now, the most significant of those effects is the acquisition of, that's right, the SASP, senescence-associated secretory phenotype. That turns senescent fibroblasts, for example, into pro-inflammatory cells. And they have the ability to promote, if they're left unchecked, tumor progression. And we talked about this fibrosis in where? In the pedocellular carcinoma paradigm. We sure did. So <clears throat> you get an intrinsic or extrinsic genotoxic stress. You're going to get damage to sensing and to transducers. These are going to be proteins. That's going to call it, cause a transient arrest and hopefully a repair mechanism. It's also going to trigger P53. P53 can induce senescence arrest, and that will block cancer, aging, and any pathologies associated with that. P53's job, right? P53 will also block, right after that damage phase, from genotoxic stress, can also block the SASP paradigm. If it doesn't block it, SASP will trigger senescence arrest, so you won't continue and finish senescence. It'll also induce alarm signals and tissue repair, uh, a modicum of that. And then you'll generate what's called a chronic SASP and persistent inflammation, chronic and chronic and persistent inflammation, which is again, a paradigm in aging, okay? Now that can actually block cancer. The first phase, the alarm signaling and tissue repair can, but once you get the chronic SASP, that can then allow for mutations, and then you can trigger cancer. Aging will, will rapidly advance and you get a whole other host of pathologies. So the DNA damage signaling pathway leads to an activation of the P53 tumor suppressor, the classical uh, cell cycle mechanisms. The activated P53 triggers sulfate decisions against, for example, senescence or apoptosis. Depending on the cell context, P53 can suppress cancer through transient cell cycle arrest. And again, an activation of DNA repair machinery, if that's what's necessary. Additionally, P53 will, of course, restrain the senescence-associated secretory phenotype. And the regulation of SAS for P53 suggests that there is a cell non-autonomous function of that tumor suppressor system, of course. So in the short term, the SAS may promote tissue repair. But in the long term, 
it will promote chronic inflammation, which in turn will cause possible mutations because of the autoimmune um, mechanism, and that can drive cancer and promote rapid elevation in the rate of aging. Now, there are various checkpoint controls in the cell cycle. Let's go through these kind of quickly. So when you get an activation by a replication force through the ATR and checkpoint one system, that will normally block a CDC25C. So that's the intra-S phase or synthetic phase checkpoint, or checkpoint number one. And when that's blocked, activated by replication forks, you won't get cyclin AB CDK1, which one would enter the M phase, right, of the cell cycle. Likewise, at spindle assembly checkpoint, there's a MAD2 protein. That's a checkpoint. That would block the APCC and then CDC20 polyubiquitination of a protein called securin. Now, when that normally occurs, you get anaphase. Now, when you right after anaphase, which is the mitotic system we just talked about, you get the end of it, telophase you have another checkpoint possibility. This is called the spindle position checkpoint. This is where the proteins APC, C, and CDH cadherin-1 polyubiquitinylation, and that occurs with all B-type cyclins. Now, that would be blocked by a spindle position checkpoint. Okay? And other than CDC-14, that would block CDC-14, by the way. Okay, so... There's another checkpoint right downstream from that that's going to be in the G1 phase where you get normally cyclin D, CDK4, 6. Now that's called a DNA damage checkpoint. That's controlled by the ATM and the R, pro R protein complex triggering P53, which triggers, triggers P21, and P21 is going to block that cyclin D. So it'll block the cell cycle at G1, so it's another checkpoint. At 4B, in terms of the checkpoint pathways, it's another DNA damage checkpoint. And this would be triggered by, again, ATM, ATMR, ATM will turn on the P53, P21, again, blocking cyclin EACDK2. But it will also, the ATM will also trigger the checkpoint protein 1 slash 2, which would block the CDC25A, because you're further down the DNA damage repair pathway, and that, that because you're blocking that, you wouldn't get the normal cyclin EACDK2, which would then all allow for S entry. We're almost done. The third DNA checkpoint check uh, damage checkpoint is again with ATMR. It would turn on the checkpoint proteins 1, 2, which would block the CDC25A again. It would also, the ATM would also trigger P3, P21 SIP, which would block cyclin now A, cyclin A, CDK2, and now you're again at that final stage of the S, S phase of the cell cycle. So you would never make it into the G2. So those where your checkpoint controls are in the cell cycle. I gave you kind of a complete overview there because it's really good to have, it's very valuable to have that information if you're trying to understand how checkpoint inhibitors work for the cell cycle. Now, I know there are checkpoint inhibitors for T cells, the PDL, PDL rece uh, receptor, um, but that's a different thing altogether, okay? 
So I don't want you to get confused. This is just cell cycle checkpoints. So once again, let's go back and let's review. Necrosis, cellular swelling, membranes are broken, ATP, ATP drops, the cell lyses, that elicits an excitation pathway, which includes an inflammatory response because of pro-inflammatory cytokines and because of innate immune cells like neutrophils showing up. Uh, you get um, DNA fragmentation, but it's random. It's not laddered. So on a gel, if you're looking at DNA from a cell that's going through necrosis, you get a smearing on a, on a DNA gel. In vivo, you get whole areas of the tissue to get infected, so it spreads because it's necrotic. Apoptosis, you get totally different thing. You get this um, shrinkage because of the potassium chloride leaving and the water leaving as well. So you get condensation of the cells. Membranes do remain intact. It requires ATP to carry out apoptosis, so it's energy requiring. The cell eventually becomes phagocytosis. There's no tissue reaction, no pro-inflammatory response. As I keep on saying, on a gel, you get a ladder-like DNA fragmentation. And in vivo, the individual cells just appear affected. And those are the only ones, right? So cell injury can also include disease. So cell stress can involve, for example, what's the intensity of the infection? And is the cell vulnerable? Then you get a metabolic and structural adaptation that would lead to injury to the cell. And then that injury will proceed from a reversible injury response, such as going perhaps to an autophagy, right? Or an irreversible, and this is a point of no return of something like necrotosis or apoptosis or indeed ferritosis. And then that would lead to absolute cell death. Okay, so you have to understand that there are multiple ways to control this, right? So we talk about an extrinsic pathways, intrinsic. Extrinsic pathways have a death ligand and death receptor. They work through adapters. They form discs and, and then they activate caspase eight. That activates caspase three, that's the execution pathway. Then you get endonuclease activation, degradation of chromosomal DNA, proteases are turned on, you get a degradation of nuclear and cytoskeletal proteins and cytoskeletal reorganization. This all leads to cytomorphological changes. It's all classical canonical. Then you get chromatin and cytoplasmic condensation, nuclear fragmentation, and the formation of the apoptotic pathway. That's the extrinsic pathway. Okay? I've got time only to tell you about the intrinsic pathway. Um, a very short radiation can induce this, toxins, hypoxia, there you get mitochondrial changes, an apatosome forms, caspase 9 is activated, that does turn on caspase 3, and then after that, the same response is the execution pathway, just like with extrinsic. So intrinsic and extrinsic differ in their initial responses. You get the caspase 9 in the intrinsic pathway, caspase 8 in the extrinsic pathway. There's, other, there's a lot of other differences. Intrinsic involves the mitochondria, and that's going to involve ceramide, the lipid ceramide, the lipid ceramide. There's another system which is induced by cytotoxic T cells, uh, and that's the perforin granzyme pathway. So perforin is a protein that perforates the cell membrane. You get the introduction of granzyme B and granzyme A. Granzyme B turns on caspase 10. 
which then activates caspase 3 execution pathway. But granzyme A turns on a complex called the SET complex, and that actually goes directly to DNA cleavage. There we go. We did get through the three, extrinsic, intrinsic, and then the cytotoxic T cell response. So we're going to leave it at that because we're going to do a lot of detail about extrinsic pathway and intrinsic pathway. But I want to stop here because I think we did a good job giving you a basal introduction of uh, apoptosis. I gave you a reminder of necrotosis and, necro nec and also the necrosis system. We played back and forth with discussing senescence. I think that's all we need to do this afternoon. We're going to get back into it um, very uh, dark and heavy because we're, this is an aging uh, arc of lectures. So we're going to, don't worry, we're not leaving senescence. And certainly the senescence phenotype I told you about, the secretory senescence phenotype, we're going to do a lot of discussion of that. That's going to involve sirtuins and regulation of chromatin remodeling. Anyways, let's stop here because it's a good time to do it. This is Dr. Dan Guerra telling you from Authentic Biochemistry. Um, why was I doing this? Because I had nothing better to do. I see I didn't forget. And why are we finishing? Because it's by four.